And one thing that I believe is that human beings need some kind of created order to think about their lives, right? That we need a language, we need a structure for reality that is not inherently there. You know, we, we don't, we're not comfortable saying, well, the order of the world, right? People wear pants, we eat pigs, but we don't eat monkeys. You know, we pet dogs, we don't pet cockroaches. We don't want this to be arbitrary because we can imagine it being a different way. And so one of the ways to create that sense of psychological security that we need to function in the world is the idea of, well, there's a transcendent order. This is the will of God. This is the will of heaven. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and we're here on the Theology Corner Podcast Network. Today, I am speaking to Joseph Laycock again. Joseph, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So last time we had you on, we were talking about Dungeons and Dragons and the Satanic Panic and about your book, Dangerous Games, which is a fabulous book, and it was a great conversation. Today, we're going to be talking about new religious movements, a.k.a cults. So before we get started, just share some of your your history, your bio, your field of study. So I am trained to study uh, American religious history uh, under uh, Steve Prothero at Boston University. But I'm, I'm interested in kind of the more controversial and marginalized religious groups. And maybe that's because I'm from Austin and I remember um, experiencing the events in Waco, Texas as a, as a kid. Oh, that's right. Around yeah. the Branch Davidians. And so now I am a, I'm on the editorial board for a journal called Novo Religio. And this is a journal that produces new scholarship uh, and, and research uh, on, on these kinds of groups. I think the first question and the most obvious question, and then I'll I'll hand it off to my listeners, the academic world tends to call cults new religious movements, whereas popular culture, kind of the rest of us, just refer to these weird fringe groups as cults. Why new religious movements? Why not just call them cults? Why is that distinction important? So the word cult originally, it's uh, it's related to the word cultivate. Um, it goes back to Greco-Roman times where they would talk about um, cultus deorum, the care of the gods. You would go to a temple and you would take care of a god the way that you take care of your, your houseplants, right? So on its most basic level, cult just refers to any organized form of worship. But in the 1970s in America, we had what were called the cult wars. And this was a period in time when uh, a lot of new religious movements got really big, really fast. And I'm talking about movements like the Hare Krishnas that everybody saw at the airports with their ponytails, the Moonies, who were in the news recently for um, doing a, a blessing of the AR-15 uh, rifle after the controversy in, in Florida, a group called the Children of God, who engaged in a practice called uh, flirty fishing, which basically involved uh, getting young women to use their bodies to spread the, the religion. Uh, and so there was this cultural moment where we said, these cults are destroying America, and these cults are brainwashing our children. And uh, some scholars in sociology, mostly 
pushed back and said, well, wait a second, wait a second, what is a cult? You can label anything a cult, and it implies all these terrible, destructive things, which might be true. Some of these groups really do have pretty serious problems, but it might not. And so they wanted a less pejorative label to talk about what they were studying, and I'm not sure they really solved the problem. Right. Because mm. it's not really clear what defines something as a cult. When I ask my students, they will often say things like, well, there has to be a really authoritarian leader and they have to be doing inappropriate things with money. But then here in central Texas, when I ask people to name some religions that are cults, they'll often say Wicca. Right. Well, Wicca huh. or, or paganism has no leader. And as it would probably be considered a pretty valid religion. I mean, sure, legally, it's a valid religion. There certainly have not been many cases I can think of of sort of pagans being involved in violence. It doesn't have any of the characteristics that they usually ascribe to a cult. So why is it a cult? I think really what these religions all have in common is that they kind of freak out the mainstream <laughs> religious establishment, which is mostly Protestant. And so in religious studies, we like to pretend that the work that we're doing is scientific and that we are taking <laughs> we're, we're taking these kind of objective uh, frameworks for what we study. But really, whether we call it cults or new religious movements, we're studying things that kind of freak out mainstream Protestant America. And we've begun to say that's that's a little bit of a problem. That's maybe not the best way to organize the, the, the data. So generally speaking, kind of unofficially, a cult is anything that freaks out the wasps. That's right. And, <laughs> and the problem with the word cult is it is shorthand for all these other bad things that a group may or may not be doing, right? But you kind of are able to say these things about a group subliminally, right? Mm, mm -hmm. um, I didn't actually say your group was involved in brainwashing or your group was involved in money laundering. I just said you were a cult. And I'm going to let the listener, you know, infer all those associations that, that we have with the cult stereotype. I, I have a friend named Chris Shelton. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he comes on the show. He's been on the show two or three times. And he is a former Scientologist member of the Sea Org. And he wouldn't call himself an expert in cults, but he calls it, you know, he is an expert in Scientology. And when I asked him about this, he said that there is a, a difference between cult and destructive cult. And that cults are, you know, kind of everywhere. Cults are ubiquitous. But uh, the the difference is a destructive cult, a destructive cult meaning a, a group that starts to prey on their people, that starts to do nefarious things. Would you agree with that differentiation between cult and destructive cult? Yeah, I mean, this is actually really important. I think that partly why we use this word cult is because we want to protect the word religion. We want religion to only refer to good things, right? We want religion to be something positive that, that unifies us, and we want to be tolerant, so we want to be open to religions other than our own. But then we need some other word now to talk about something that looks a whole lot like religion, but that we think is bad. And with my students, I, I encourage them to be more comfortable with just saying, you know, I think this is a bad religion. Right? Yes. It's, it's, it's legally, it's a valid religion, but it's it's bad. And, you know, certainly with a group like Sea Org, you can point to a lot of things that are arguably uh, uh, bad or bad that have happened in, in the past. That doesn't make it not a religion necessarily. Exactly. How about if I go ahead and let my listeners take it from here? I collected a lot of questions from social media. You know, I announced that I was having an expert in new religious movements come on. I, I think we're in this cultural moment, or maybe we're in a cultural moment that's just never gone away since, like, since the 70s, but we seem to be 
fascinated with cults right now. For example, there have been lots of shows lately out about cults. There's Waco, there's, a, you know, American Horror Story last year did their season about a cult. And so we just seem to be in this moment that's obsessed and fascinated with cults. And I'm sure there's more insight there. But so a lot of people were very interested in this conversation and had lots of questions. Here's a question from Donald. Can you tell us two to three new religious movements that have started within the past five years? You know, we tend to think of cults as a thing of, you know, Jonestown, Scientology, Heaven's Gate, all of these new religious movements, they tend to be more in like the second half of the 20th century. Can you name any that are that have just started within the past three to five years? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a gap between when a religious group starts and then when other people find out about it and then finally when scholarship is produced on it. Sure. But uh, the American Academy of Religion uh, National Conference meets every year. I'm currently reviewing articles that have been uh, submitted on that. One trend of growth we're seeing right now is in what's called invented religions. So this would include things like Jediism. Okay. <laughs> people who would say, I'm a, I'm a Jedi, I call on the, the force. <laughs> Um, that's a bit older than five years, but not a whole lot more. And this is a trend we're seeing towards, you know, if you want to create a new religion in the 21st century, the, the traditional ways of starting a religion were either you tell people this is really ancient and maybe it's been rediscovered, or you tell people I had a revelation from, from God to start this new religion. And, you know, some people have argued that the, the best way to do it in the 21st century is just to be honest with people and say, look, I made this up, but right. it's really cool. And we can have a cool religion together. Uh, so Jediism would fall in that category. There are other uh, religions kind of based on uh, media. Another area we see is lots of schisms of pre-existing groups. So there is, for example, uh, a group called the Native American Church that uh, the government has said is allowed to use peyote for traditional purposes. There is now a guy named James Mooney, um, who is probably more European in ancestry than the Native American, has taken the title Flaming Eagle for himself. He started his own sort of branch of the Native American church, and there's an argument about is this uh, is this real or not. There was a controversy last semester while I was teaching my class about a group, I think their, their name is pronounced Nexium or something like this, but it is a kind of self-improvement group for young women, and there was a story that this involved branding people somewhat um, uh, against their will. Oh my um, goodness. And so, you know, and so a lot of these things are kind of in this kind of gray area between what we traditionally think of as a religion and being something else. So this group presented itself as a kind of self-improvement program or a kind of network or something like hmm. this, but it seemed to, and there's a lawsuit going on right now, so we won't know kind of all the details uh, until later, but seem to have some of the kind of classic things that people are afraid of goes goes on um, in, in a group like this, including a kind of giving over your, your autonomy to a, a uh, to a powerful leader. So yeah, there's, there's lots of growth going on, but there's a, a little bit of a gap for uh, how fast we can keep track of it. Uh, would something like the new state Satanic Temple or the the Satanic Temple be considered a new religious movement? I consider the Satanic Temple uh, a religious movement, but this depends on how we define what a religion is, right? And this is something that the government refuses to do. The Supreme Court doesn't want to come in and say this is a religion and this is not. Uh, so by default, the branch of the government qualified to do this is the IRS. 
Right. The, the IRS gets to decide if, if you're if, not really if you're religion or not, just if you have to pay taxes or not. There's a slight difference between being a church that has money coming through it and, and being a religion. The argument that the Tang Temple is not a religion is that they're atheists. Right? They say, we don't believe in God. We don't believe in the devil. The argument that they are is they would say, look, not all religions are about supernatural beliefs. Yes. We have this really powerful symbol, which is the Satan of the Romantic poets and of John Milton. It means a lot to us. We do rituals together. This shapes our worldview. That's what makes it a religion. Um, and I'm, I'm actually, the more that I've known about the Satanic Temple, um, I visited their headquarters in Salem, and they, they do have rituals that they do all by themselves. They don't do them to annoy people or to uh, annoy Christians. That's a lot of what they do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, but they do seem to be sincere that this actually does mean something to them. It's not entirely just about irritating their, their political opponents. I mean, even in... Yeah, so like even in a basement alone, there's still Satanists. And, you know, I bring up the, the Satanic Temple. By the way, for listeners who are interested, I have two episodes with the Satanic Temple, one with Greg Stevens, who uh, a spokesperson for the temple to go through the seven tenets of the Satanic Temple, and then two leaders from Gray Faction to talk about the Satanic Panic. So if you're interested, go check those out. But one thing that really interests me about the satanic temple is how they're entering into this kind of gray space with religion and and do you think that religion in america and this is my question this isn't from a listener do you think that religion in america in this current age is changing that the way religion looks in a fundamental level is shifting somehow where you know we've had kind of these monoliths of religion in america christianity or, or protestantism catholicism so on and so forth and you know we can look at those and say here are the pretty basic characteristics they gather together in a particular place they believe in a literal supernatural deity there are dogmas there is a central book so on and so forth central rituals just all of this basic stuff you know and i'm sure that i'm way simplifying it you know i'm sure that it's more complex than what i'm portraying it as but do you think that that's changing do you think that the fundamental makeup of what religion is and the way practitioners of religion do, do you think that it's changing in a fundamental way so jay-z smith was a, a a very famous scholar of religion he, he just died this year but he's he said that the the default of what a religion is supposed to look like for americans is protestantism yes and, and that the more something looks like a protestant church the more more likely we are to say yes that's that's a real religion and as evidence for this he's looking at a, a, a case from 1993 involving Santeria right which is a traditional afro-caribbean religion from from Cuba and this was about whether this town in Florida who did not like having this religion in it could pass a law banning animal sacrifice Mm. And in the decision, the uh, the Supreme Court said this is absolutely their constitutional right. You can't make a law blocking them from doing this as part of their religion. But in, in doing that, they kind of framed Santeria as if it was a Protestant church. I mean, they talked about kind of this community comes together to share their values and, and so forth. And Jay-Z Smith said this is kind of odd because really what they're doing is they're offering, you know, chickens to the gods, right, in exchange for blessings of the gods. And, and they're talking about it as if this was kind of like an Episcopalian uh, <laughs> a, a gathering, because the subtext, if it's, if it's not, if it's that different from Episcopalians, then how can we defend it legally? So I, I do think you're right, that we're moving a little bit away from that assumption that religion means 
you have a building that people go to once a week and you have hymnals and, and, and things like this. The other factor that we, we see is um, in demographics, when we survey Americans, more and more of them are saying, I have no religion. And people like Richard Dawkins have tried to claim these people as atheists. They're not atheists. These are people who might describe themselves as spiritual, but exactly. not religious. Who still read their horoscope or still you know, have a tarot reading. They still believe in a supernatural higher power. Or, or they pray to God. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that uh, this is especially big with, with millennials. And interestingly, I think that this too is a consequence of Protestantism. I think the idea that if you're really spiritual, you won't just go to a community and let them tell you what to do. You'll figure it out yourself. In a weird way, dates back to kind of Martin Luther's critiques of the, the traditions of the church, that this was empty ritual and, and, and that uh, mm. faith begins in, in the hearts. So there's a kind of irony there that I, I see the kind of spiritual but not religious trend to be at its core, uh, a very Protestant orientation to to the sacred. Absolutely. You know, something that along those lines, something that I've been thinking about a lot, because I've been doing a lot of self-examination. I consider myself a deeply religious person. I would at this point call myself kind of a non-theist. I'm a member of the Satanic Temple, but I'm also, you know, deeply Christian. I don't think that that will ever go away. And I'm somehow in this weird place of being able to have both of those. You know, I go to an Episcopal church and I'm a member of the Satanic Temple and then I teach yoga and I'm kind of a Buddhist. And it was Buddhism that really got me through a lot of my very dark ruts. And my partner is a former Jesuit novice. And, you know, we're kind of this weird conglomeration of stuff and just looking at myself and noticing how I have this DIY approach to faith. And I think that that's kind of indicative of my generation as a whole. You know, I feel like millennials, we kind of have this do-it-yourself approach to religion and faith and spirituality, which really freaks out the old guard, you know, which really just terrifies or freaks out the more established mainline religions. Yeah, there was a very famous book on the sociology of religion in America that came out in the 80s, and they met this woman named Sheila, and she said, well, my religion is Sheilaism. And, <laughs> and and they said, what is Sheilaism? And she explained exactly that sort of thing. That, you know, my parents are Quakers, and I love Taoism, and I love Native Americans. And uh, at the time, that was pretty bizarre and there was a lot of papers on Sheilaism and what does this mean and <laughs> I think now you know a significant percentage of the country are doing some form of Sheilaism yeah, absolutely. Well, and, you know, when I'm honest, I have to admit that that's what I'm doing. I value religious identity so very much. I value my religious upbringing and identity and kind of these these guiding myths so much. I don't want to live without them. But at the same time, kind of the old the, the structures that have been given to me aren't working for me for whatever reason. I also have to accept science and empirical evidence and skepticism. And so I have to somehow wed all of those together. And I think I speak for a lot of my listeners when I say that, that most of my audience is in this place of kind of this deconstruction of old Christian faith and finding this weird new amalgam of some, you know, this compromise of what we hold on to and what we let go. Moving on to another question, have new religious movements declined? because we don't seem to hear 
about them as much these days. This is coming from Ben. And so, you know, I think what Ben is referring to are like the big cults of the latter half of the 20th century, you know, Scientology, Heaven's Gate, Jonestown, Children of God. Have cults kind of gone on the decline or underground? I I think that we are not seeing movements of the kind of scale that we did in the 70s. For all the kind of fuss about Scientology in the media lately, conservative estimates are there's only about 20,000 Scientologists out there, and most of those are in Los Angeles. So we might not have Scientology in in 50 years, or it might have changed into something totally different. Uh, Harry Krishna's, better known as the um, International Society for Krishna Consciousness, still exists. I don't think they're as big as they were in the 70s. Interestingly, they've begun a project called Krishna West, where they've said, you know, why do we have to have robes and, and ponytails? Why can't we look and dress and act like Americans and still be about kind of the uh, the, the faith in, uh, in Krishna? So that could be another change is that we're seeing these classic groups kind of reformatting themselves in ways that we don't notice them as much uh, anymore. I think that there is some room for growth online. I think it's easier now to go online and kind of form a group that interacts with each other through the internet. But, uh, you know, we know historically that most, uh, most new religions don't last very long. It's pretty rare that a religion actually survives, you know, more than a, than a century. And if it does, it tends to be here to stay. Mm, that's really interesting. Here's a question from Joe on Twitter. What do anti-vaxxers have in common with cults? This is, that's a really, um, it's a really interesting question. You know, you were asking earlier, why are we so fascinated with cults? And, you know, all my students are, um, you know, really interested in podcasts that cover cult violence. There's there's um, there's a podcast just called Cults. And it's a great podcast. Yeah. Yeah. But this is a little bit inexplicable, right? Because in the 60s and 70s, you know, we had all these parents whose kids went off to college and, and joined a, a cult. In the 90s, we had these incidents of cult violence, right? Heaven's Gate and Waco and so forth. We don't really have anything like that right now. And yet there's this fascination. My theory about why that might be is because we are culturally so divided over things like vaccines and the authority of experts. We are kind of, you know, labeling each other's media as fake news and mm. some of it really is fake news. Uh, and I think partly what is at stake with this kind of cults label is these are people who look like me, talk like me, but they see the world in a completely different way, right? And mm. and it's a way of kind of getting your head around the fact that your neighbor could be sort of part of your culture, but thinks that Obama is secretly still president and Trump is about to, un, uh, you know, is, is, is going to unleash this uh, satanic pedophile ring that Hillary Clinton is part of. And, <laughs> and, and you know, I mean, there's really wild stuff out there. And, yes. and I think that um, what we saw in things like American Horror Story is kind of setting these two things side by side, right? And saying, what does this political division and political extremism have to do with with uh, uh, religious extremism? So I, I guess that's kind of what I sense being at stake there in the question is kind of how do you how do you explain people who have a totally different understanding of, of what's happening in the world and what's happening in their in their country? Yeah, it's almost like is uh, I think another example is flat earthism. Um, there's one example that drives me absolutely nuts because everyone around me is just raving over it. Young Living and doTERRA essential oils where they believe that, and I don't know if you know about this or not, but they believe that, you know, 
pure essential oils can cure cancer. I had a friend put essential oils on my fucking cat to try to <laughs> calm her down. And it's it's almost this, it is also weirdly a cult of personality where Young Living, the founder, is this charismatic charlatan. And fucking everyone in this area is into it. And there seems to be now like this this blurring of scientific integrity or scientific understanding of the world or or critical thinking of the world at least that's how i see it that's that's what i'm perceiving and so no essential oils can't cure cancer no not vaccinating your kids is not a good thing no <laughs> you know hillary clinton does not have a pedophile ring out of a pizza joint or no the the earth isn't flat you know these these weird blind spots these weird black holes within our reasoning and is that somehow like the new manifestation in our age of the same kind of stuff that created cults in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, so there was a book on legitimating new religious movements. If you start a new religion, how do you convince people that what you're saying is is true? And one of them is revelation, right? Saying, listen, God really talked to me. I'm, I'm, I'm for real. And if you're a very charismatic person, you could persuade people of that. But another one was reason, right? I mean, groups like the Satanic Temple would fall into this. They would say, look, what we're proposing is is reasonable. And, and so with that strategy, I think goes a kind of uh, appropriation of the cultural authority of science, right? Saying, you know, look, what we're doing is scientific. What mainstream scientists are doing is not really scientific. What mm. we're doing is, and so it's it's weirdly kind of promoting this alternative understanding of the world and it's it's sold as being uh as being reasonable as being based on uh on science and this isn't a new thing really at all if you go back to um the church of christian science in the 1800s yes right this was mary baker eddy was saying faith healing is real and it's not it's not supernatural right this is in a sense something empirical um and of course in her day you were often better off trying faith healing than going to a doctor because medicine was not nearly as uh, as, as advanced. <laughs> so, so you know, as, as strange as some of the things going on right now are, they're they're not really unprecedented. This has sure. happened before. Sure. Uh, here's a question from Timothy: Would you consider progressive Christianity a new religious movement? If so, how? Yeah, I, I I don't think it kind of bears the family resemblance to a lot of the groups that we study. This is, again, the problem with the category, right? When people submit papers to the conference panel on new religious movements or they submit uh, proposals to the, the journal that I edit, we don't have like a list of topics that are okay and a list of topics that are not. So, I mean, I would, I would argue Christianity began very progressive, right? Yes, um, absolutely. Apostolic socialism is, is, is pretty progressive. I think in and of itself, that probably would not qualify. However, there have been various kind of experimental communities in um, progressive Christianity um, that I think would more have that family resemblance to the other kinds of groups that we study. Groups that are sort of experimenting with creating kind of a, their own society um, and organizing themselves differently. Um, there's a long history of these kinds of experimental communities in, in America. And of course, Jonestown began as a progressive Christian movement, right? Absolutely. That was the dream of Jonestown before everything uh, went bad. So I think it depends less on are they progressive, but sort of, you know, how what are they doing to kind of distinguish themselves as, a, as an organization from other kinds of Christian groups? Mm, sure. So here's a question that I have, you know, kind of as I've been reading about this subject, I'm fascinated with 
Heaven's Gate. I'm especially fascinated with like the alien religions. I think that they're just so fascinating. I'm fascinated with, you know, Waco and Jonestown and and kind of all the big classic cults. And out of the big cult scare in the 70s and 80s, there was this thing called deprogramming. And kind of the flip side of that is cult mind control. And so, you know, this idea that cults uh, reprogram your mind and that it's that's deeply powerful and you know they use cult mind control techniques and then you have people there's one individual i can't remember his name who is a professional deprogrammer you know we have these people who've made a career of either kidnapping people out of cults and deprogramming them you, you know and so on and so forth but now what i've heard lately is that this whole idea of cult programming and deprogramming is uh maybe not very accurate isn't true and could you help me understand that some so this was a big part of the cult wars right was this idea of, of brainwashing yes um the the idea of brainwashing begins in the korean war um so it was originally an idea coming out of the intelligence community um american pow's in that were captured in north korea would occasionally be videotapes you know giving speeches about how communism is good and they don't want to go back to america because americans are, are evil and in 1950 a journalist with ties to the CIA, published uh, wrote a newspaper article with this term brainwashing. So that was the first time mm. we had seen the, the word. And what he basically implied was there is a kind of secret that has an ancient history in Asia of controlling people's minds and, and getting them to, to think the way that you want them to think. And the term brainwashing was a loose translation of a term that actually comes from Confucianism. And a more accurate term might be cleansing the heart. So there is some truth to this. We know that in these POW camps, they would do things like tell people, if you write an essay about why communism is good, we'll move you to a larger cell, right? And, and so those kinds of tactics, especially if you have complete control over everything that somebody does because it's like a POW camp, sometimes really can shift your attitude. Some people, if they write enough essays about something, will begin to believe what they are writing. But this was also a kind of way for the intelligence community to explain why Americans would ever say such things. Right. Mm. And so it was this began as something in espionage. And so this famous movie and, and novel, The Manchurian Candidate, introduced this concept to Americans. And then it was a decade later that these new religious movements come in. And so it shifts from being something that foreign governments do to something that weird religions supposedly do. And an interesting transition in this, I think, is um, the Mel Brooks sitcom Get Smart. And so there's a they did a, a, an episode with a character called the Groovy Guru, who was both a kind of new religious leader who was recruiting hippies, but also secretly was a spy who worked for the, the, the bad guys. Uh, and not long after that episode came out, you get this kind of explanation of, well, why did my son drop out of college and join the Hare Krishnas? It must be all the chanting that they do is this secret form of mind control. And so this this person, Ted Patrick, that you named, was hired to by a woman to basically get her kids back from uh, a group called the Children of God. And Ted Patrick concluded this is brainwashing. This is what they were talking about with the Koreans. And the only way to reverse it is to forcibly abduct people from these religious groups and then brainwash them again to sort of back how they were. And they would use the exact same techniques. So you might uh, forcibly drag somebody away from, say, a Hare Krishna ashram, take them to a hotel room, tie them to a chair and say, you know, spit on this picture of Krishna and I'll untie you. Right. Or 
Mm-hmm. Um, say say you don't like Harry Krishna, and I'll give you some some water. Uh, and so it's it's every bit as as, as bad. Uh, and so this led to all kinds of legal cases because if these groups were practicing religion and people were choosing this as their religion, it's constitutionally protected. If, however, this is actually some kind of psychological warfare, then these people did not choose a religion. They are sort of medically damaged uh, and, and have to be fixed. And so these court cases would have people like Margaret Singer come in and say these religions brainwash people. And then the other side would say, does Coca-Cola brainwash you, right, when they make you buy Coca-Cola? And, and she would have to say yes, right? That right. That, that, that's also a form of, of coercion. So the brainwashing debate has kind of broken down. And I, I think where we can kind of agree is, of course, religious groups have sophisticated techniques to persuade you that their religion is is correct. It doesn't seem like in most cases they can actually kind of do something like the Manchurian Candidate, where they sort of turn someone into a zombie. Um, what it seems like they're more capable of doing is kind of giving you really good incentives to stay in a group, right, to, to not leave. And that could be things like, you know, in Jonestown, Jim Jones literally had your passport and all your money, right? Exactly. You, you just can't leave unless you're very, very motivated. Or um, the Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, will, will disfellowship people if, if they leave, right? We can't associate with you anymore. So that's an incentive to to stay in the in the church. Um, you know, I talk about this with my students. I say my my gym makes me sign a two-year contract. If I want to quit the gym before the time's up, I can't. So they've given me this incentive not to leave, even if I want to leave. Is that brainwashing? I mean, it seems to be to, uh, of a piece uh, with the kinds of things that, that we call brainwashing. I, I think that this is actually much more kind of common sense and sort of easy to see than we originally imagined it as being something kind of mystical coming out of Asia and able to literally control people. And it's much more ubiquitous. I mean, these are ploys that businesses use and families use to good and bad effect. Yeah, and, and my students are kind of trying to brainwash me when they want, you know, an extension on a paper or something. <laughs> they have a whole repertoire of, of tactics that they employ. <laughs> so <clears throat> here is a question from Becca. Is there anything that makes sense to him, him being you, is there anything that makes sense to you about what cult leaders have to say? Have you ever thought, well, they've got a point? Yeah, this is quite common, right? The, the kinds of people who become new religious movement scholars tend to be very sympathetic to these groups, tend to be very, they often tend to have a kind of bully complex. They don't like seeing people who are different being kind of uh, uh, picked on. And, and so there's a lot of anecdotal evidence of people going out and doing ethnography with these groups and and deciding that they want to join. And and often they don't join, but often they're sort of on the, the verge of it. And this is partly just kind of human nature, right? When I was doing research for my book on um, this group of apocalyptic Catholics out in New York, I didn't share any of their values. They were very homophobic and very conservative, but they were human beings, right? And after sort of working with them and accepting hospitality from them for three weeks, I thought, these are kind of nice people, even though I I don't agree with their um, kind of politics or or, or values uh, at all. I guess the other thing I would talk about, there's there's a concept from theology, which I find really helpful, called spiritual regret, Mm. which is an attempt to describe looking at another religion and understanding it and thinking how that could actually be a really beautiful way to see the world, but it's not your way. It's it's huh. it's somebody else's. So kind of this is you know a theologian saying when I look at Buddhists 
meditating and kind of think about the peace they experience with the music. That sounds really great, but I don't see the world the way a Buddhist does because I believe in God and I believe I have a soul created by God. I don't believe in re reincarnation and, and, and so forth. I feel that way a little bit with the Satanic Temple, this kind of sense of spiritual regrets. I kind of admire how some of their leaders have this ability to see something that they think is unfair and wrong and just kind of embrace the kind of righteous indignation yes. um, that, that comes with that. And I, I really admire that. On the other hand, you know, I looked at a script for a black mass that they performed and I was like, I don't think I could do this. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> what is um, What is your spiritual tradition? If, if you have one. Yeah. So my, my wife and I are kind of culturally Catholic and we got married in the, the Catholic church, which was no small feat. There's a lot of classes and uh, paperwork and, and, and things like this. And uh, my, my wife also uh, studies Tibetan Buddhism. So if you look at our house, there is a lot of Buddhist art and things like this uh, that, that are up uh, in, in, in the house. But Catholicism is, is our core tradition, and it has a lot more to do with kind of, this is our tradition, this is our heritage. Yes. Uh, and it, it's something that's important that we don't want to, uh, uh, to, to lose. Even if, you know, I get annoyed with something that, say, a Catholic leader might might say. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. I, I still stick with it. Yeah. Cool. Very cool. Uh, here's another question from Becca on Twitter. Is there anything about the cult phenomenon that is distinctly American? Yeah, that's that's really interesting. You know, to, to answer that question fairly, I think we would have to do some kind of comparison between America and some other culture. I have heard claims before that Americans are sort of more drawn to messianic leaders or sort of more drawn to millennial movements. If there's any truth to that, I think there's a couple things to think about. One is that we get this emphasis on the apocalypse and kind of our role in it from our Puritan forebears, right? That sort of the Puritans imagined America as a city on a hill that would have this important role in bringing about the end of the world and the return of Jesus. Mm. And JFK, you know, hearkened back to that in his speeches, right? We are the yeah. city on a hill. We are, that uh, we have this great destiny. I think in new religious movements like Mormonism, that's very much at stake, that America mm. is a place where these holy events uh, happened. The other thing I would think about is uh, another country that's known for new religious movements is Japan. When the Allies basically took over Japan after World War II, we drafted a new constitution for them guaranteeing religious freedom, which, which hadn't been there before. And there was this explosion of new religious movements. And so there may be a connection between kind of enshrining ideas of religious freedom and kind of personal autonomy to choose your religion in, in our laws and the, the impulse to go out and create new religious organizations and, and groups. Hmm. But there, there's new religious movements all over, right? All sure. over Europe, all over Africa, all over. Uh, there's even new religious movements in China, even though the government is quite afraid of them and has done a lot to kind of suppress them. Um, yes. So it is it is human nature. It can't be it can't be stopped by, by governments or, or culture. Uh, so that leads me to my next question. This is from the podcaster out of Eden. For listeners who don't know, he's a fantastic podcaster who uh, explores post evangelical Christianity. Sam from out of Eden asks. Is there a reason why the brain or individual people can ignore cultish behavior within religions deemed socially normal? Interesting. So uh, kind of the history of the study of new religious movements, initially there was a theory that there was a cult type, that there was a particular personality type that joined cults or was susceptible to cult uh, indoctrination 
And there were some kind of psychological studies with people who had joined these groups uh, to try to see if they had something in common. That research falls more into the sphere of psychology. And, and I think now it has, the, the, the theory has kind of shifted to, well, it has less to do with what kind of person you are and more to do with sort of what's happening in your life at that particular moment, mm. right? Are, are you having, you know, if uh, if you have just lost your job and your house is burned down and your partner has left you and someone says, do you want to do you want to join my church? You might be more likely to say yes, right? Than than if everything is is going very well. Having said that, I mean, there's definitely personality types, and one person that I work with at Novo Religio is Rebecca Moore, who is a professor and runs a site on Jonestown. And two of Rebecca's sisters, her older sister and her younger sister, became very involved in the People's Temple and, and died there in Guyana. Hmm. And, and Rebecca was asked to join, and she said, no, right? I have no interest in this. And, and the reason she sided was she said, you guys keep talking about racial justice, and all of the upper leaders of this organization are white. I think you guys are full of it. So it's very interesting to have you know three sisters who have the same family. They grew up in the same church that emphasized social justice, and two of them thought the people's temple was the greatest thing ever and one of them thought absolutely not i, I don't i don't want anything to, to do with this so i you know how do we explain that other than just sort of you know different personalities huh that's really interesting and, and i highly endorse uh, rebecca moore's website by the way if anyone interested in in jonestown it's it's a really great archive and really pushes back against the sensationalism to to kind of think about the the people who who really uh were there and kind of why they made the choices that they did Mm, what's the name of that website? Oh gosh, I think it's I think it's just called the Jonestown Project. Okay, well, um, it's it's through San Diego State. Okay, awesome. Well, I will research that and put that in the show notes for listeners. Here's a question from someone whose name on Twitter really worries me. Heartbroken Dad asks, "What is it in our nature that makes humans believe and therefore expect that a higher power or deity is necessary for their fulfillment. <laughs> this is a big one. This this might be above your pay grade. <laughs> well, I mean, this sounds like a fairly loaded question. Yeah, it right? really does. It, heart, heartbroken Dad seems like he uh, he's asking a lot here. Right. So somebody like C.S. Lewis would say that's because we were created by God and he put in us this desire to know him. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, somebody like, you know, Sigmund Freud would say this is because, you know, we, we feel guilty about subliminally wanting to kill our dad. And so we made this kind of sky dad to uh, to take his place. You know, my my theoretical framework for these things tends to come from sociology. And one thing that I believe is that human beings need some kind of created order to think about their lives, right? That we need a language, we need a structure for reality that is not inherently there. Animals don't need this, right? Animals can just sort of be turned loose on the, on the world and, and they're happy. Human beings need a created order. I was reading recently about Helen Keller and Helen Keller having a moment where she realized is everything in the world has a name, that there's a word for everything. And so, you know, we, we don't, we're not comfortable saying, well, the order of the world, right? People wear pants, we eat pigs, but we don't eat monkeys. You know, we pet dogs, we don't pet cockroaches. We don't want this to be arbitrary because we can imagine it being a different way. And so one of the ways to create that sense of psychological security that we need to function in the world is the idea of, well, there's a transcendent order. This is the will of God. This is the will of heaven that things be this way. And even very, very rationalist people will still have to concede that sometimes we just agree to things out of convenience. We don't really have a rational reason. Absolutely. For for, for doing it, right? No one decides what language they're going to learn as a baby, 
right? You just learn from your parents. And then if you want to learn a second language after that, you can. But no one in, in the womb is saying, well, you know, this many people speak English and this many people speak Mandarin. Right? <laughs> Maybe I should learn to, to label things this way. We, we get that from our, from our culture. Hmm, fascinating. You know, what that reminds me of is a biblical scholar who I really love named James Brownson, who's done a lot of work on sexuality and homosexuality within, within the church, creating a theological framework for accepting homosexuality. And one of the things that he talks about is how much of Levitical law is exactly that. You know, Levitical law is exactly this uh, appeal to divine authority to keep these cultural frameworks in place. And, you know, these divisions between clean and unclean and that animals that that transgress the boundaries laid out in creation between land and sky, between water and earth, that those things that that violate those fundamental boundaries, including male and female, are considered unclean. It's just very, very fascinating. So here is a question from Ruth on Twitter. What warning signs can we watch for? I am assuming she's speaking for uh, in regards to uh, destructive cults. What warning signs can we watch for, particularly in the digital age? Most of what I've read on warning signs is decades old. And what's a warning sign people are unlikely to recognize? There is what's called the anti-cult movements. And this is a, an organization that still exists today, but it really has its roots in the cult wars of the 1970s. And, and that's why you can go online and you can find these lists of sort of warnings that your child is in a cult or that your church is in a cult. And they are mostly from the 80s. Would like websites like cult education, stuff like that? Yeah, absolutely. Cultwatch.org. Okay. There's a guy named Rick Ross who has a really big website. You know, I would really caution people to take all of that with a grain of salt. Often these are people who are sort of trying to make a career for themselves as this kind of authority who can detect cults and, and save people from cults. And and, and, and so forth. And it's kind of their, their, their livelihood. I don't do that work, right? I, I don't do the work of sort of extracting people from religious groups or advising them what religion they, they should join or, or what they shouldn't. I think, you know, my advice would, would just be to use common sense, right? If, if you have a loved one who is cutting off their ties with everybody, is uh, making poor financial decisions, if you know that they're being physically abused or something like that, I mean, if, if that strikes you as something dangerous that's going on, then it's dangerous, right? Your instincts sure. uh, are, are probably correct. On the other hand, if it's something like everybody in my church believes that the leader is really wise, well, that might be okay, right? That might not necessarily in itself be some kind of destructive authoritarianism. But I, I guess more harm can be done by sort of rushing to label groups as being destructive and, and dangerous. My colleague Kathy Wessinger wrote a book on violence in new religious movements, looking at groups like Waco and Jonestown, and said basically, you know, we should never just assume that a group is going to be violent, and we should also never give a group a clean bill of health and say, we, we check this out and, and nothing bad will uh, will, will happen. So our, our ability to kind of predict is, is not that great. And that's a little bit what annoys me about the anti-cult movement is that they act like we have this great ability to diagnose and predict that we actually have a pretty bad track record on. Yeah, like, for example, wasn't Heaven's Gate considered a, like a, a benevolent cult, like a benign 
cult by a lot of people and then it suddenly ended in mass suicide? Yeah, Heaven's Gate is an unusual case, but certainly they never meant any harm to anybody else. They never threatened anybody else. They never had weapons. You had two leaders there and they believed initially that the spaceship was going to come and was going to kind of take them to the level uh, above human is what they called it. And they had two leaders and one of them died. And this was a a theological crisis for the group because they said, we're all going to get on the spaceship together. How can we do this if if one of us is is dead? So there was this gradual shift towards, well, maybe we don't go on the spaceship physically in our bodies, right? Maybe we have to die first. Uh, And also the group was aging and running out of resources and and things like this. And it, it just sort of happened. I mean, I mentioned earlier in the interview, the religious groups die out all the time. And, and sometimes when you see issues of suicide or violence, it's they know that their, their, their group is ending and they get to sort of choose what ending they want. Right. I think that was at stake at, at Jonestown uh, as, as well. I also just want to emphasize things like Jonestown and Heaven's Gate and Waco are actually incredibly rare. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. That's why we we all know about them. But but the the number of groups that actually have something like that happen is is astronomically rare. Well, and that's why that's why they're such cultural touchstones. (laughs) You know, if if it happened all the time, they wouldn't be these iconic American moments. You know what I mean? But but there is a a kind of cultural stereotype that this is just what cults do, right? That their sort of raison d'etre is to commit mass suicide. And I, I see this in shows like Family Guy, where they're issuing punch and the leader says, haven't any of you been in a cult before? Um, right. And so I, my students, especially, I want to emphasize, this is really rare. And there's always a kind of special set of circumstances that takes a group to down this, this path. So I think this is a really helpful corrective for some of what I've been doing on the show where Matt and I, Matt, one of my co-hosts, we have, you know, read through those lists. I've had other people come on and talk about those kinds of lists of cult behavior put out by the anti-cult movement and kind of just the thing that I have that I'm hearing and that I have been realizing is that potential destructive behavior is everywhere. You know, we kind of swim in the constant potential for destructive behavior, be it in a church or a business or a friendship or whatever, you know, it, and so it isn't limited to these fringe groups. It's something that is likely anywhere. And we just need to constantly be open to the possibility of things going south, that human nature can be authoritarian regardless of where it is. Here's one last question, and it kind of ties into the very last thing that you said. Can a cult ever be healthy and not harmful? What would that look like? Yeah, I I mean, the paradox is that just the way that we use these terms in um, popular discourse, if we think a group is healthy and we like them, we call them a religion. Right. We, we don't call them cults. You know, I think one example of a group like this that's gained acceptance would be the Amish. Right. O- on paper, the Amish have all the hallmarks of a cult. There is a patriarch who decides all the rules for the community. They are isolated. The Supreme Court ruled that the Amish do not have to send their children to public schools past a certain age because they have a religious right to keep people within their own community. But we 
kind of inexplicably love the Amish in America. They've been kind of described as America's conscience or, or something like this. There's something charming about them. And maybe that's because they have this kind of pedigree. We don't think of them as something new. We think of them as something from the old world, right, that is that is charming. There is a scholar named David Feltmate, and he has argued for thinking about new religious movements less as social problems that we have to fix or, or contain and thinking about them more as kind of experiments in different ways of organizing society and seeing if there's anything useful about them. And one example of this is Jonestown. You know, he says, if you look at all the good that Jonestown accomplished before the, the, the leader sort of made this, this terrible decision, but they were, they were taking people from the most dangerous, poverty-stricken neighborhoods of Oakland and Los Angeles, and they were housing them, and they were feeding and housing everybody for something like, you know, $120 a month per person. And so David, and, and David Feltmate was not, is not suggesting that we all move to Guyana and, you know, pool our resources, but he says, you know, this is interesting. What if you had a community where everybody kind of pooled their resources and you did your shopping at Costco to save money, you know, could you actually make a better life for the poor in America? Because more and more Americans are are becoming poor. And we don't think about that. All we think about is they they drank this poisoned flavor aid. So there there, there is, um, without ever apologizing for someone like Jim Jones, I think that there is a, a, a potential a source of ideas and experiments that could be mined and maybe something useful could be found. Mm, absolutely. So I have one last question and then I'll, I'll let you go. This is something that I have been thinking about quite a bit. Online discourse seems to be, online and offline discourse, seems to be polarized into these two categories. One side is the skeptical atheist community, which is very anti-religion and anti-cult. And they, they tend to be on this campaign against any kind of irrationality in religion and cults. You see this a lot in the responses to like Scientology. I feel like Scientology is a centerpiece of this. And I feel like figureheads of this, you know, for lack of a better term, the new religious movement or the new uh, the new atheist movement figures like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris. I'm just curious what your assessment of that rationalist counter reaction to things like cults and religions. What what do you agree with and what do you not agree with? Well, you know, what I tell my students, I encourage critical thinking. I encourage them to think about the data for themselves. And to some extent, that entails letting go, right? If I really want my students to make their own conclusions, they're going to make different conclusions, whether they are an evangelical Christian or, or an atheist. But what I am intolerant of in my classroom is smugness. <laughs> yes. Oh, God, thank you. <laughs> the enemy is smugness, right? It's, it's not that people have beliefs that they, you know, if I have a Christian who says, look, I, I believe Jesus Christ is my savior. I don't have to offer a rational explanation for that. It's fine, right? Yes. If I have a student who says all of the religions that we've studied in this class are highly implausible and, and don't have any real evidence, that's fine too. What I can't stand is when there is this kind of certainty that everyone who disagrees with them is stupid and yes. doesn't have to be taken seriously. And that's what I sometimes find myself pushing back against when I'm looking at writing assignments from students is kind of take a step back, try to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and have a little bit of empathy for someone that you that you don't agree with. And that's what maybe we're losing in the online discourse. Yeah, I agree. You know, listening to a lot of the new atheists, what I hear is a profound lack of empathy and kind of an 
a lack of self-awareness of, well, what if this was you in this situation? In this idea that rationality is just taken for granted, that it is a fundamental aspect of human nature. And I don't think it is. You know, I think that we are primarily irrational, secondarily rational creatures. And that's beautiful. That's a good thing. It means that we can all look at the same thing and come away with completely different interpretations. It's what makes humanity interesting. And and it leads to beautiful things like art and religion and spirituality. And then it leads to horrible, destructive things like propaganda and religion and spirituality. And the empathy within a lot of the atheist community towards religious people. And honestly, I think that kept me a fundamentalist for a very long time. I sometimes feel like there's this draconian deal that the atheist community offers where they say, here are all the riches of science, but in order to accept it, you must let go of your beloved religious community. Most of us just can't, we don't have the ability to accept that deal. And so I feel like I remained in fundamentalist Christianity far longer than I ever needed to because of that. But I was just I was just interested to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, you know, and the, these psychologists uh, in the brainwashing debate said one of the tactics cults use is, is milieu control, which milieu control is just basically you don't leave the cult, you don't talk to people who aren't in the cult, you don't read things that aren't cult teachings, and this is a way of brainwashing. And, of course, this theory is adapted from studying prisoners of war. With Facebook, we're kind of all prisoners of war, right? We've, we've done milieu control to ourselves. Absolutely. We never talk to someone who disagrees with us about anything important, and so we we are, in a sense, brainwashing ourselves to the extent that brainwashing is is really a thing. Mm, that's a great insight. And I think that's a great note to end on. Well, Joseph, thank you so much for joining me again on the show. Listeners, I'm sure will really enjoy this. I love talking to you. It's always really interesting. Well, thanks again for having me. It's, it's always fun to chat. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's our show. For those of you who want to support my show, please go to sbradfordlong.com where you can read my dozens of articles on faith and doubt and spirituality and religion and mental health and LGBT issues. You can also go to theologycorner.net. Theology Corner is the podcast and blog network which hosts this show they have amazing shows there if you want a show about feminism interviewing female pastors from all sorts of traditions check out theosophia if you want a podcast about the desert fathers from an eastern orthodox perspective check out the patristics if you want a show of a jew and a protestant talking about theology and smoking cigars check out a jew and a gentile we have all kinds of fantastic shows there please go check them out so the music is by Matt Langston, The Jelly Rocks. The artwork is by Justin Caleb Bryant. I have one last request. If you find value in this show, if you find yourself listening to it every week and looking forward to it every week, please take the time to write a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen. That will help me reach a wider audience. So we will see you next week.